Hello again. We're looking this morning, uh, not at Romans, but we're looking at Mark's gospel. I feel like I have uh, white fuzz on me all the time. We're looking at Mark's gospel. We're going to be in Mark's gospel for uh, between now and uh, ad- the season of Advent. Uh, the very end of November, we'll begin the first Sunday of Advent, and we'll switch gears uh, there, but plan on being in Mark. Uh, I also would ask that you would uh, plan on look, us looking at larger sections from Mark's gospel than we did from uh, Romans. Uh, Mark's gospel is narrative, and so we can look at uh, lengthy uh, sections from that gospel, which is why we're looking at one verse uh, this morning. So apart from the one verse this morning, uh, anticipate uh, uh, sections in the teens, uh, 12, uh, 15 verses at a time. Well, little theologians, I'm glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. Little theologians who are watching via live stream, uh, you uh, are missed as well. Uh, Moms and dads, uh, all of you who would normally be here and are watching via live stream, you're missed too. I didn't mean to neglect you, but little theologians, you're missed. I miss uh, gathering with you at the end of our worship service to collect pictures. Uh, The number of pictures that I get uh, has uh, dropped in volume. saddens me. Little theologians, please, would you draw a picture of two hands shaking? A handshake. I know, hands are really difficult. Stick figure hands. Stick figures have hands, too. Draw a handshake. Because in this passage, Mark, he's just introducing us to a man, the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But he's just introducing us to a man. Please draw a handshake for me. Our passage is from Mark, just the first verse. Would you please join me in prayer, and then I'll read this verse aloud, and we'll begin. Please pray with me. Our Holy Father, we thank you for telling us about yourself, not just events, but how to understand those events. We thank you for telling us about Jesus and all of Scripture. We thank you for this opportunity to spend time in Mark's gospel. He's just telling us by your Holy Spirit about Jesus. Thank you for making yourself known in his name. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Short verse, but this is the word of our Lord. I don't know about you, but I always feel like an expert when I've watched a Ken Burns documentary. I may know nothing about the subject other than what I took in during the documentary, but having watched the documentary, I know everything. I'm sure there are many of you who feel that same way. In fact, I remember watching uh, jazz and just knowing everything about jazz, listening to jazz, delighted when people would uh, walk in and catch me listening to jazz and I would have something smart to say about jazz because I watched the Ken Burns documentary, not much else. When you think about the formation of a work like that, a documentary, and of course we know there are many from uh, this man's mind, that information is uh, aggregated from a vast amount of information. And we really do feel that when we read Mark's gospel. 
Mark is, uh, in a manner of speaking, presenting to us a bit of a documentary about Jesus. He's gathering information. My parents have uh, hundreds of uh, videotapes and um, uh, the small ones. They're still videotapes, not the big ones, but the small ones. I mean, they have hundreds of these in their attic. This family uh, films. In fact, my parents uh, also have uh, uh, reels, you know, the, the black things, the reels. My vocabulary is just emptied. I mean, it would be a nightmare to go through the attic and to gather all that information to collate a, a, a story of the Jones and the Carroll families. It would be really challenging. And it, it, in manner of speaking, that's really what Mark uh, is doing. He's uh, rooting through, as it were, the life of Jesus through uh, one man in particular, through uh, Peter. And he's putting this information together. He's actually uh, carefully selecting what Jesus uh, says. And he's uh, not merely arranging it, but he's describing it in a rather lyrical way. He's putting, to, putting it together in these individual units, uh, general events, uh, events about conflict, uh, events that are uh, unusual, uh, almost like a short survey or documentary. And as Mark puts uh, this together, he's not even uh, really critical about chronology. He's selecting uh, public events of Jesus, mostly that happen in Galilee. That's the first half. And in the second half, it's uh, events that are all about Jesus making his way to Jerusalem where he'll die on the cross. And as Mark puts this information together, he uses very active verbs. Uh, he uh, is fast-moving, and he provides a description that is very vivid, memorable. And then over time, if you, if you just read large sections of Mark's gospel, you begin to not only feel uh, that he is picking certain elements from the life and ministry of Jesus, but he's arranging those elements in a certain way, and he's describing these elements in, uh, we might say, a lyrical or eloquent manner. But over time, you begin to see how he's arranging the life of Jesus. And Mark seems to uh, pick up these larger themes. They seem to be themes that he's interested in, but also themes that are important in understanding Jesus. The theme of traveling. Jesus seems to always be moving. The theme of Jesus' teaching in the countryside is related to Jesus' teaching in towns. You begin to see that when Mark uses the word crowd, he's saying something specific because he is uh, talking about how the crowds relate to Jesus as opposed to how religious leaders relate to Jesus. He shares miracles, but there seems to be a progression to the intensity or the greatness of the miracles. Uh, he is uh, revealing to us who Jesus is in the teaching of Jesus, uh, but that revelation of Jesus, it actually progresses uh, over time. He certainly wants us to see that there's a great deal of conflict, and he gathers together these conflict stories. He wants us to see that the disciples are rather dim-witted, that they learn slowly, and he wants us to see that. But it's almost as if he just picks out the most relevant, most germane information, uh, organizes it, uh, tells it in a, in a vivid, uh, rapid way, and then he just ends. Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four gospels in the New Testament, 16 chapters. It's very brief. It reads very quickly. As some scholars have called this the core gospel, Many suspect that Mark's gospel was the first of the four gospels written, and that all the other writers are actually going into Mark's gospel to get the core features 
of the life of Jesus. Let me say a couple more things and dive in. The theme of Mark's gospel is in chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. I think, I think that's correctly the theme of Mark's gospel. But I want to do something a little bit different this morning from what I ordinarily do at the pulpit. I want to speak uh, expositionally about uh, Mark's gospel, but as you see, I only have selected one single verse. But I, I want to spend some time describing who Mark is. I want us to begin by just getting to know Mark, and for that, we're going to look at different parts of Scripture, parts of Scripture separated from Mark 1.1. And then when we get to know Mark, then I want to round out the sermon and I want us to begin to anticipate what it is that Mark is about to do based upon his first verse. The theme for this sermon is that, it's very simple, to Mark, the gospel is a person. To Mark, the gospel is a person. But let's get to know Mark, shall we? But the author is actually never stated in the letter itself, but the title, uh, the uh, Gospel According to Mark, actually uh, has been from a very long, for a very long time uh, associated with this letter. So we don't know exactly who the author is apart from that title, but it has long been held in the life of the church that the author is a man by the name of John Mark. And Mark is writing in perhaps the late 50s or maybe the early 60s in the first century. And Luke seems to have a copy of Mark's gospel when he's writing uh, his own gospel. And he also seems to have a copy of Mark's gospel when he's writing Acts. Luke, he wrote his gospel and he also wrote Acts. And Luke, he seems to depend upon uh, Mark. And we're using that as a bit of a gauge to determine when Mark wrote his gospel. But one thing that's undoubtable is this. What you have in front of you in Mark's gospel was written about 20 years after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's written 20 years after that. And just to help uh, your own imagination, uh, what were you doing 20 years ago? We're aiming for some, sometime around the year 2000. You remember Y2K? Do you remember the Nintendo Game Boy? Do you remember Coldplay? Do you remember Enron? Do you remember the dot-com bubble? You there? So 20 years ago. That's, that's how long it was since the ascension of Jesus that Mark is sitting down and he's writing this letter or book or gospel, whatever it is. He actually invents a genre of literature. We'll talk about that later. But Mark, he certainly wasn't one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he probably didn't travel around with Jesus. Mark, though, is a Jerusalem boy. Well, that's home for him. He grew up in Jerusalem, and he would have had a front row seat to the events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. And not only this, but after the ascension of Jesus, the Christian church, as we know, takes root in Jerusalem, Mark's own hometown. So he would have had more than a passing knowledge of the ministry of Jesus. We need to know this. 
You need to know that Mark comes on the scene in the Bible through the founding of that church in Jerusalem. The church was founded in Jerusalem when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, and some 3,000 people become believers. And the disciples for uh, the first part of the church are actually centered on Jerusalem. And Mark, he's watching all of this. And not only this, when Mark shows up in Scripture, which is Acts chapter 12, we know that Mark is uh, living in a home in which his mother is a deep supporter of the church in Jerusalem. She's mentioned only once, Acts chapter 12, verse 12. When Herod begins to persecute Christians in Jerusalem, it didn't take him long, by the way, to begin to do that. Almost a year after the crucifixion, Peter is arrested. James, the older brother of John, John is the one who wrote uh, the uh, gospel according to John. John's older brother, James, he had already been killed in the city of Jerusalem, the first martyr. But about a year after the crucifixion, Peter, he's arrested, and many Christians, they gather together at whose home to pray for Peter? Well, they gather at Mark's home. Well, Mark's mother's home. And then Peter, when he miraculously escapes from prison, he goes to this very house. He goes to Mary's house. Mary is the name of Mark's mother. And many suspect that this Mary was very wealthy, had a large house in which many people could gather together to pray, that she was a great supporter of the Christian church, and that she was rather wealthy. She has at least one maidservant. And Mary is very connected to this new thing called the Christian church. Mary's nephew Barnabas also is a Christian. And after the resurrection of Jesus, for ten years or so, when Herod was still a threat in Jerusalem, Barnabas, he actually was in Antioch. He's away from Jerusalem. And Barnabas is uh, developing a relationship with a man named Saul, who will come to be known as Paul. And Peter, he seems to be traveling outside of Jerusalem, although he's based in Jerusalem. And then here we have Mark and his family nestled at home in Jerusalem while Herod is going crazy and seeking to kill as many Christians as he can. Peter has uh, only sporadic uh, uh, occurrences in uh, Jerusalem. He is out and about. Barnabas, uh, he is, uh, I guess we would call him a church planter uh, in Antioch. But right there is John. After 10 years, John is just living as a Christian, watching things unfold from a very, well, from a very uh, central location. It seems to be that after 10 years, Barnabas, he goes out of his way to collect, uh, well, to collect Mark. And he collects him, and he takes Mark to uh, Antioch. And uh, actually, Mark is uh, someone who is a part of Paul's very first mission. Let me just step back from that. Paul's very first mission probably happens around AD 45, the resurrection in AD 33, 34. Paul is a mature believer at this point. Uh, Mark, he's been uh, almost invisible He's uh, in the home of uh, Mary, uh, but the church in Jerusalem is struggling. And in fact, Christians in Jerusalem have been sent out, but Mark, he seems to stay there. And Barnabas, church planting in Antioch, comes and he gets Mark. And then Mark is a part of that first mission, but only the first part of Paul's 
mission. And nobody knows why, but Mark leaves the mission. Paul, by the way, was greatly offended by that. But Mark leaves the mission, and uh, presumably he uh, goes back to Jerusalem. We just don't know. You see, Mark is basically invisible for 15 years after Paul begins his first mission. And then almost out of the blue, Mark, someone whom we know has a close connection to the expansion of Christianity in Jerusalem, is in Jerusalem when that expansion of Christianity comes under heated persecution and Christianity begins to go well beyond Jerusalem. Mark is just there. And then he shows up in Rome. That's very odd that here we have an individual who grows up in Jerusalem, uh, by all accounts, as a believer. And then he, he begins to travel with a few Christians, have connections with ministry, and then disappears. And then he shows up in Rome. And when he shows up in Rome, by this time, he's actually somewhat of a hero. <laughs> but while in Rome, uh, Paul actually praises Mark's assistance as a fellow worker. Paul does. Some 10 or 15 years earlier, Paul was angry with Mark because Mark left him on the first mission. But now, uh, Mark is actually uh, very valued by Paul while Paul is in Rome. And Mark, apparently, he travels a lot and he uh, ministers to uh, Christians in different cities. In Paul's presumably last letter, 2 Timothy, he actually asked Timothy, send Mark to me. That means Mark wasn't in Rome at that time. So maybe Mark traveled back and forth between Rome and various churches. Maybe Mark was a conduit of information about what's going on in the life of the church for the ears of Paul. And this connection that Mark has to Rome is actually very important. This is what I'm building to. At the very end of Peter's ministry, pastors of the first century say that Peter died a martyr in Rome. So here, uh, we're after Paul leaving Rome. If Paul was imprisoned in Rome, maybe AD 62, AD 63, maybe 63, 64. Peter is in Rome after that time period. Uh, Peter is writing in AD 67, 68. Uh, Paul likely, I suspect, is actually in Spain. And uh, Mark, while he was in Rome uh, helping Paul, he seems still to be in Rome because now he's there when Peter is there. And the connection that Peter has with Mark is very intimate. It was from Rome that Peter wrote his two letters, but Mark was with him, and that connection is affectionate. Here we have these two Jerusalem boys guys that grew up in Jerusalem. Uh, Peter's probably 20 years older than Mark, maybe not quite that much, at least 10 years older than Mark. And here Peter is in his 60s uh, in Rome, reflecting upon many years of ministry, uh, indeed uh, in hot water uh, before Roman authorities. But he's writing to the church. He's still caring for the church. Do you remember, by the way, that that mission trip that Paul embarked upon, his first mission, the one that Mark wasn't a part of, the churches that Paul planted are the very churches that Peter, at the end of his life, is writing to in First and Second Peter. Here, the end of his life, he has with him Mark. Here they are, these Jerusalem boys, some uh, 30 years uh, after uh, the resurrection or more. 
actually third, uh, uh, 40 or 50 years after the resurrection. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter says this. Again, he's writing those churches that Paul uh, planted. She who is at Babylon, he's most likely referring to the church at Rome. Babylon was a nickname for Rome. The church at Rome sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. 1 Peter 5.13. And when Mark is spending this time with Peter in Rome, he's likely doing that work of Ken Burns, gathering information about Jesus. Mark writes his gospel through stories about Jesus that he hears from Peter. For some of those stories, Mark would have been in the area, but not for all of them. In Mark's gospel, if you read it, well, you don't have to read too carefully. What you find out is that Peter's foibles, his mistakes, the things that make Peter look bad in Mark's gospel, they're, they're highlighted. They're emphasized. Wouldn't you like to meet Peter? The stuff Peter does wrong, he tells Mark. Mark emphasizes those things. And the stuff that Peter does well, his successes, in Mark's gospel, they're actually muted so that we really see the ornery side of Peter well. Peter's probably telling the story to Mark. And the vivid details, you might think, is the product of a, of a, a, a homeschooled boy, good education, but still a local education. We don't know anything about Mark's education. I'm just making a joke. But so, uh, so quick we are to say that Mark was so eloquent, such a good writer, and the details that he provides are so colorful and vivid. And we think, what a great writer. It could be he's just getting this from Peter. That's why the details are vivid. And we can only guess why in the world is, is Mark writing this gospel? Why do you think he's doing that? He's probably writing simply to preserve the story of who Jesus is. When Mark is writing his gospel, none of the other gospel writers have written, presumably. Galatians has been written. James has been written. But there's not much available apart from the Old Testament. And as the church grows from Rome, uh, Mark understands that people, they need to know about Jesus. You know, Mark could have encapsulated thousands and thousands of anecdotes. Mark could have asked Peter anything under the sun. He's got Peter right there. But he stops at 16 chapters. He gets enough. This is what people need to hear to become a follower of Jesus. Now, that's just background for Mark's gospel. And we're going to see elements of this as we spend time uh, in this gospel. But let's switch gears a little bit. Let's get a little bit more expositional, look at the text at hand very quickly. And let's ask ourselves, how does verse 1 tune our expectations for what's to come? Right? So, first part of the sermon, just about Mark. Now we want to ask, how does verse 1 actually dial in our expectations for what's to come? And really, all I want to do is I just want to unpack three words. It's obvious that I don't have a whole lot of words to deal with. I mean, look how short the verse is. The verse, by the way, isn't even a sentence. But I want to unpack three words or three phrases. But let me begin with just an illustration. This comes from a present-day Scottish theologian by the name of Dom MacLeod. Don McLeod wrote a wonderful book called Compel Them to Come In. 
And he says that when we think about what it's like to tell people uh, how to become a follower of Jesus, he says oftentimes we get lost in describing to them not who Jesus is, but rather what faith is, or what belief is, or what trust is. And McLeod uses this illustration. He says, when you think about those people who are hired to work on um, high uh, aerials or masts, the uh, transmitters, a very tall antenna, someone has got to climb up them to change the bulbs. Don McLeod says, when you think about uh, the poor soul who uh, has that particular task, uh, what do you think is on their mind before they ascend the, the antenna? He says they're not concerned about trust and faith or belief. What are they concerned about? They're concerned about the ladder. Is it securely fixed? They're concerned if the ladder has been maintained well. They're, con they're concerned if the rungs of that ladder are good. They're concerned about the cables, not only how they are maintained, but who made them, where do they come from? How were they attached? He's concerned about the things themselves. He's not concerned about his measurement of faith in those things. Now, I want to come to this illustration at the very end of the sermon. But to Mark, the gospel is a person. And Don McLeod says that sometimes we get caught up in uh, faith in the gospel, trust in Jesus but Mark is just telling us who Jesus is. Just like the man who's ascending the antenna needs to know. Is the ladder maintained? Well, to Mark, the gospel is a person. Look how he opens his letter. He opens his letter in a way that might seem rather demure to us, but it isn't. Anyone here read comic books? I never did. But if you read comic books, when um, someone is hit, isn't there like an exclamation of bam or pop or boom or something like that? Is that a comic book thing or is that just a preview of superhero movies? I don't know. I'm not that kid. But when you look at this uh, opening line, this really is that cataclysmic bam with an exclamation point. He says, the beginning now, Mark knows that his readers would think of another great beginning. When you look at it in the Greek, the first word of this verse is simply arche, beginning. Remember, I said it's not a sentence. One commentator writes that for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. And that's the evocative image that would pop into someone's mind when he begins his letter with just arche, beginning. You see, Mark, he's not here to tell us about the mere chronology or the timeline of the gospel. When he uses this word beginning, he's talking about the very mind of God and God's own plan for salvation. Genesis 1.1, you heard it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mark is saying, God in charge, arche, beginning, or bam, with an exclamation point. Mark says, I'm not just telling you a story. I'm telling what is the foundation of everything that you know. It's not just a story. In fact, let me, before we go further, let me just tell you how this reads in the Greek. Beginning, the gospel, Jesus Christ, Son of God. You could say, 
Well, he is a very creative writer. That's poetry. We might see some oddities in it, and we think, ah, yes, E.E. Cummings does stuff like that as well. Mark is describing the foundation of everything that we are. Mark is not interested in eloquence. Mark is interested in you knowing Jesus. Beginning. I'm not telling you just the start of a story. I'm telling you what is the foundation of everything. Beginning the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Well, let's begin with the gospel, shall we? He uses uh, the word for good news. And uh, listen, we know where we are. We're at Covenant Presbyterian Church. We love the gospel. Uh, Many of us have been Christians for many years. And so uh, the word gospel, that's rather old-fashioned to us. Actually, it would make sense that he would begin with uh, gospel or literally uh, good news, euangelion. Doesn't sound very special at all in many ways. It sounds rather common. But I want you to think about Mark's original audience. Maybe for most of this audience, 30 years after the resurrection, this word gospel may have been common, but it might not have been common as well. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Mark, he's going to use this word seven times. Seven times. Did you think it would be more? Seven times in 16 chapters. I thought it would be more. But you know, Matthew, he only uses the word, well, how many times do you think? Larger letter, four times. Four times. And uh, Luke, you know, how many times do you think he uses the word? Or John? Zero. Zero. This is an, an old word that's getting new expression for the Christian church. And probably, since he's writing some 30 years after the resurrection, this word is already being uh, bandied about in the life of the church. Uh, all, all the Christians would know this word. Uh, they would have no choice but to uh, think this is the word that applies to Jesus. He is that good news. I want to tell you why they would suspect that. But if someone wasn't a Christian and they heard this word, they would have no choice to think about politics. Ooh, you just shudder. I shudder. They would think about politics when they heard this word. A Roman general bringing a message from the boundaries of the empire, that would be good news. Good news is that the boundary is expanded and everyone in the city is supposed to be delighted at that news. But it would also be used for any political news that a politician would want you to interpret as good news. A politician would share something that's happening and then say, you should understand this as good news, telling you how to interpret the events. Don't think you're the first one to be cynical about politics. Could you imagine a person of authority coming and telling you what's happened and why you should find this to be good news? When Augustus was born, the man who would one day become emperor, the first emperor, it was communicated across the empire as what? Good news for the world. That's a political word. But for Mark, good news is not political good news, but God's good news. Mark is, in many ways, inventing a kind of literature that's called a gospel. There's no other kind of literature like this in the history of the world. When we think about uh, Christians not having a role in the arts, uh, there's another great example of this, but here's a great example of Christians actually establishing a literary genre. Nothing has been written like this before. And he's using the word gospel, a word that would have uh, been used... Everyone would have heard this word, but he's not using it in the same way that it would be used in the Roman daily news. 
When he uses the word gospel, he is uh, pumping new life into a word that comes from the Old Testament that would come to, over time, be loved in the life of the Christian church, but perhaps wasn't loved to that degree when he's writing. Listen to Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, Paul goes to this verse in Romans 10. You know that. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus preached from this very text. What Mark is doing when he uses the word gospel, he's playing into the hands of pagans. Ah, you're using that word. I know that word. That word is a political word. I don't like that word. And Mark says, but wait. This is the better news of that good news. This is the good news that God himself has promised in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 61. For Mark, the gospel is more than a political interpretation of events. It's more than a set of truths. It's even more than a message or a story. The gospel is a very person. You know, when he says, beginning, good news, you can almost substitute good news with what he says next. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Beginning, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That word gospel used by pagans, translated in the life of the Christian church, Mark seizes upon and puts it in print more so than any other gospel writer. But when he says what he says next... I want you to hear that he is offering a confession of faith. Statements of belief. We don't like those, do we? We want to believe what we want to believe. We don't want to submit ourselves to something that is believed by large bodies of individuals. I'm being tongue-in-cheek. I hope that that's exactly what you want. But really what he says when he says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's offering a confession of faith. Let me tell you what I mean by that. He uses the personal name of Jesus. This is a variation uh, of uh, the Hebrew word that means he will certainly save. Uh, that's the uh, translation of one scholar. And then he adds to Jesus the official name of Jesus, which, which really is less a name and more a title, a title bestowed upon him by God, Messiah. God's anointed. That's the name for uh, God's uh, appointment. And then he adds uh, another. He adds the Son of God. And here, that's, it's not a name and it's not a title. It's more a relationship, isn't it? He's the very Son of God, which is to say he is God. Now, here's why I think that this is actually a, a confessional statement from the life of the church. In much the same way, gospel is. The church began to use gospel in a way that was different than the world. And the church begins to understand more and more about who Jesus is and what he says here, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it becomes a bit of a confessional statement for the church. It's what a church would put on a church's website. This is who we believe Jesus is. 
For each of these statements about Jesus, Mark never asks us to take his word for it. Each of these statements are going to be affirmed in this gospel, and they're going to be affirmed by others. Jesus of Nazareth is affirmed by a demon in Mark 1, verse 24. Messiah, the anointed one, is affirmed by Peter in Mark 8, 29. Son of God is, a, is affirmed by another demon, Mark 3, 11, but also a Roman centurion in Mark 15, 39. Each of these statements that tell us Jesus Christ, the Son of God, represent a confessional statement from the life of the church. Mark is not doing anything new. He doesn't want to be seen as doing anything new. He wants to take everything that we understand about Christian faith, everything that we understand about what it means to be in a church, and he wants to focus that on a person. To Mark, the gospel is a person. You know, on the one hand, Nothing here is dramatic, remarkable. But on the other hand, there's a real temptation here for us to see some things about ourselves we might not like to see. Just give an illustration. You don't know my uh, grandfather, Couch. Grandpa Couch was someone who was significant to me, even though uh, I stopped living in the same city as Grandpa Couch at age five. But this man is very meaningful to me. And if you have the time, you can ask to sit down with me, and I will tell you about Grandpa Couch. It's not super exciting. You're not going to read anything about, about him in any newspaper. has absolutely uh, no notoriety or fame at all. A simple, humble man. A Christian, but not necessarily a profoundly devout Christian, though he's with Jesus now. I would have no problem sitting down with you and telling you about my grandpa couch. And there are figures like this for you as well. You would have no problem just sitting down and talking about someone who is important to you. But I think it's rather remarkable that we do have a hard time doing that with regards to Jesus. And I think that Mark would be disappointed in us because Mark just wants to tell us who Jesus is, what he said, what he did. And we ought to have the kind of ease talking about Jesus that we do talking about someone like my grandpa Couch. But it's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for obvious reasons that Jesus is uh, uh, really summarily uh, uh, hated by our world, uh, denied. It, there's a sense uh, in which to talk about Jesus is really, really foolish in the world. But Mark doesn't seem to care. And I'm not sure any of us should seem to care. You see, to Mark, the gospel is a person. And he wants to tell us about that person. When I think about where to go from here, Jesus Christ, Son of God, we need to be prepared to just be willing to tell people about Jesus. Because that's what Mark does. And I want that to be on your mind as we begin our study more in depth tomorrow, even as we, or tomorrow, next week, even as we look at John the Baptist. He's there so that we might learn about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Let's not think that the gospel is about uh, a belief or a trust or a set of truths or uh, even a story, but the gospel is about Jesus. And if we can really believe that, I think that it will become easier for us to sit down and just tell people about this God-man. I hope that that is our encouragement. Remember, Mark is the first gospel writer, likely, writing so that Christians would not forget who Jesus is, but also so that Christians would be able to tell their neighbors who Jesus is. To Mark, the gospel's a person. Well, welcome then to Mark's gospel. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, thank you for making yourself known. Thank you for teaching us by your Holy Spirit. Would you give us great courage as we go out into the world to tell others about Jesus, in whose name we pray now. Amen.